Um, the reading is from 1 Peter 1, verses 1 to 9. To God's elect, exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, through the sanctifi sanctifying work of the Spirit, to the obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Grace and peace be yours in abundance. Praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into a new inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you, who through the faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of salvation, that in ready to be revealed in the last time, in all that you are greatly rejoice. Through, through now and a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes through the refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him, and even though now you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your, of your souls. Um, do keep that passage open in front of you, because what we're going to do now is we're going to spend some time looking at, um, at what it says and what it uh, means for our life. Just before we get started, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Josh. I'm one of the leaders here. Um, lovely to, to meet you, especially if I've not met you before. Um, it'd be great to catch up afterwards. Um, well, there are some people in the world who choose to get up at 5.30 a.m. to lift weights and run three miles before breakfast, then move into studying all day long, and into the evening you'll find them in the library reading. They'll do that every day for three years, and then they'll finish it off with some very high-pressured exams. And it won't end there. They'll want to get up at 5 a.m. every day for the next two years to go and lift weights and run three miles in the gym before going to their job at 6 a.m., working until 6 p.m. and spending the evening doing more study and reading in the library. Then they choose to join a program that is going to push their body to the limits of human endurance. They're going to have people demanding that they perform really complicated tasks deep underwater. These people, they're made to use machines that are going to apply a g-force to their body that is greater than that as if you're in a racing car. They're going to have intrusive psychological tests. People who are strangers asking all the hard questions and looking into their friends and families' deep dark secrets. And they're still going to be put in places where they have to make a life and death decision under severe pressure. And all of that is going to cost these people more than $60,000. Now, why would anyone choose to put yourself through that? Why would anyone spend 10 miserable years of your life going through that? Well, it's because that's how you become an astronaut. So anytime those early morning gym sessions feel tough, what keeps these people going is their hope of where where one day this might lead. Anytime the stress of those exams or the, 
the uh, launch simulations and making them physically sick. Well, what keeps them going is thinking about what they're going to see when they look out of that rocket window and just gaze on a billion stars. You can't expect to do all those hard things without hope of where it's leading. It's actually the same um, on a lesser level for a first year student or for an expectant mother or for somebody who's beginning life again in a new and strange country. And perhaps we might have all of those people here in our church this morning to choose a life that's not easy. It's not comfortable because of what you've chosen. It's going to make life harder. But hope is behind everything. Hope is how this all begins. Hope is what keeps you going when it all is tough. And it's right here with hope that Jesus' disciple, a man called Peter, he begins his letter that we're going to be looking at over the next few weeks. Peter's letter is to some of the very first Christians, and he describes them in verse 1 as exiles. That word means somebody who belongs to one country but is living in another country. And he's not talking about political exiles, people who physically are from one country and live in another. It's to people who belong not to a country but to Jesus. But because they belong to Jesus, no matter where they are, they're not going to find belonging in their cities and communities. Because they love Jesus, they've chosen the path that means that they won't be loved by their neighbours. Because they are imitating Jesus all the time, it means they're going to be despised. And that might even be in their homes. That's what the exiles are. And that makes it a very relevant letter to Christians in 2023. As in our society here in Liverpool and, the, and in the UK, Western society and the media are increasingly suspicious of Christians. Christian beliefs are increasingly thought of as being outdated regressive and potentially quite harmful it's going to feel and it is feeling increasingly more and more like we don't belong here like we are as if we're foreigners in someone else's land we've got different values different morals and different loves and this letter peter writes to people who live as resident aliens and he begins with the thing that he knows will make all the difference to people who are doing a hard thing. He's going to begin with hope. Hope is behind what we're doing. Hope is why we are different from our neighbours. Hope is why we are here meeting together. Hope is why we bash the kids' instruments and sing Jesus Rocks the World. When we know that on Monday we're going to face people who at best think we're weird and at worst would like to give us a piece of their mind. Hope, though, is not only how we cope as we face those difficulties. Hope is how we are going to rejoice and grow and bring glory to Jesus. Our hope is amazing because, firstly, hope makes you secure. There's a difference between the way the Bible uses the word hope and the way we've come to use it today. Uh, today, we often use the word hope to mean optimism. I hope it'll be sunny tomorrow. I don't really know, do I? It's like a wish. Just putting out there a wish, a want, something I'd like. I hope. Well, sometimes we say hope and we mean it a little bit more secure than that. 
I hope to visit London at the weekend. Well, I've got a bit more sureness about that because I've booked the train tickets and I've planned my journey. So I hope it will happen, but I can't say for sure it will because I might get ill. I might have to pull out. The train might get cancelled. The train will probably get cancelled. Our hope, we say the word hope to mean we're not that sure. We don't say I will go. We just mean I, I, I hope it probably will happen. It might do, but it might not do. But here's what Peter means when he says hope. He means something certain. He says the word hope and he, in verse, uh, verse 3, but he also um, is going to talk about hope the whole passage. And what Peter means by hope is this. Um, I used to be a leader on a kids' camp, and uh, we, it was completely outdoors, in tents. There's no buildings. It was just in a field. And I was a leader, and one of the jobs of the leader was to um, do the night duty, which meant you had to sit outside watching over the tents, making sure none of the kids crept out of their tents and started running away down the field, or making sure nobody else came into the field. And so you'd sit there in the middle of a field, knowing you're going to be sat there all night. I was really exposed. It was right by the sea. And sometimes it'd be lovely at 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night, sitting there in the peace and quiet, and you see all the stars above you. But as the time ticks on, it gets boring. Then as the time ticks on, it gets tiring. And because there's no clouds, it's a clear night, then at that time, about kind of 4 a.m., you're tired and you're cold, sitting in the middle of a field all night. You've got your woolly jumper on, got your coat on, got your blanket on. And here's what I would think. I would think, I hope the sun comes up soon because I'm freezing. What kind of hope is that? Am I wishing for something that may or may not happen? I don't know. <laughs> Who knows if it's going to come up tomorrow? Or is there a chance it might not? Just because tomorrow, you know, it might get cancelled. Sorry, guys, sun's cancelled today. No, I hope that the sun comes up soon. That's a great hope. Because it will. It's never not done. There's never a possibility that it won't come up. I hope in the way that Peter says, verse 3, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy... He's given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Although we're resident aliens where we live, says Peter, we are like temporary travellers in a changing world. We've got an unchanging, certain hope as surely as the sun rises in an unchanging and uncertain world. And having that hope makes us secure. I wasn't sure whether to use the word secure because I sometimes feel it sounds like a bit of a weak word. If I say, how would you like your life to be? You might say, I want my life to be exciting. I want to have a happy life. They're great words. You might say, I want my life to be content. Well, that's quite nice of you, but you're probably not setting your sights that high. We think contentment's a bit boring, but okay. Secure, well, that feels like the bare minimum, right? It's one next to insecure and miserable. Secure doesn't sound like a great word, doesn't sound like a wonderful news coming from this, but actually, you know what? Look around us. Security is something we all crave. We see it all the time. Our society is orienting itself around telling us that we need to be secure. Secure in who we are, 
Being secure in who you are is a massive message to society, uh, from the youngest kids in nursery all the way to grown people. There's a message in society that says you are who you are. Be proud of that. Be secure. Find a way to be secure in yourself. But we live in a world of insecurity. We live in the world of imposter syndrome. You are here, but you feel you shouldn't be. We live in the world of longing for connectedness, of FOMO. Do you know what that is? Fear of missing out. Why is that even a thing? Why do we say FOMO? Why is that a thing? Because we live in a world of insecurity. I'm insecure in who I am. I'm insecure in how people think of me. And we crave financial security because we think that that is going to be a future secured for us. We want to be okay if everything goes wrong. It's why it's such an anxiety these days if people feel that they're not going to be able to pay rent and save up or not going to be able to pay a mortgage. We are anxious. We crave security. That's why this is great news. In a certain hope, we get security. Security is what Christians have in spades. In verse 2, Peter says this. Uh, it's to people who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of the Father. That's who you are if you're a Christian. You're chosen. You're secure because you're chosen by God. He says you're chosen through the sanctifying work of the Spirit. The Spirit works in us to set us apart for God. He makes that a reality. We're secure in that. And it says, uh, set apart to be obedient to Christ Jesus and sprinkled with his blood. That is um, referring back to a bit in the earlier part of the Bible, in the Old Testament. When God made definite and deep and profound promises to a group of people. And he said, I am your God and you're my people. I want you to know you belong to me. And they sealed that with a ceremony where Moses sprinkled the blood on people. Sprinkled with blood means... You are secure as belonging to God. Do you see, Peter's saying, if you're a Christian, then every member of the Trinity, every person in God has worked to give you unshakable knowledge deep down that you belong to him, to give you the best and utmost security in and of yourself in who you are and who you belong to. But verse 4 goes on to say we have the security for the future. Uh, we're born into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade. It's the family language. Born, verse 3, new birth, into an inheritance. You're secure for the future if you're born into a family who's going to give you all their wealth when they die. You're born into God's family, and you've got something wonderful to look forward to in the future. And listen, this is a certain hope. As surely as the sun will set tonight... Why don't you remember that tonight when the sun sets? You were sure it was going to happen, and it will. When it's dark, you know that was sure. And as surely as the sun will rise tomorrow, remember, those of us who trust in Jesus will enjoy a future inheritance. And it's better than financial security, which, as we really know right now, it does perish, spoil, and fade. House prices will go down if you were putting your trust in those. Um, savings are not going to be worth as much because interest rates are going up. Banks collapse. No, our hope gives us security for the future because our security is in the glory and rest and riches of heaven that will never perish, spoil or fade. And you know it's guaranteed because of this. Our future depends 
on what has already passed and can't be changed. Look at verse 3. A new hope, uh, a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Here's where this hope is so much more amazing than the hope of becoming an astronaut or getting a degree or starting a, a new life afresh. Our hope doesn't depend on us. Our hope isn't based on what we hope will happen, might happen through our work. Our hope is based on what God has already done and it's completed. That security in who you are and who you belong to is because God has done it already. We are who we are because we're chosen by God and that's done. We're made his by the spirit, that's done. Sprinkled by Jesus' blood when he died, that's done. And we have a future hope because in history past, Jesus rose again. And as surely as the sun will rise, nothing is going to change that. Does that not spell the most ultimate, most delightful security? There is no imposter syndrome with God the Father. He chose you. He made you his. There's no mortgage anxiety with the Father. It's all paid. It was all done. And we've seen that in history, and that's not going to change. So your future is secure. And it's because of this that hope unlocks joy in suffering. Verse 6. In all this you greatly rejoice. Though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. That's vital to the Christians Peter's writing to. It's vital that they know this security because they're going to face a tough life. Because of their hope in Jesus that gives them security, that's going to make life difficult. Just as you're going to never put up with the training you need to become an astronaut unless you've got hope. So we are going to need to draw on that security, to remember that. Because living as followers of Jesus is going to bring with it suffering. Now, as Peter talks about the grief in all kinds of trials, he's not talking about every suffering. He's not talking about the time you get injured playing sports or when you miss out on a promotion or fail your driving test. The letter as a whole seems to have in mind the particular suffering you get because you're a Christian living in a world that thinks differently. The suffering Peter's thinking about that the people are going through is the disrespect from people who think that you're either delusional or naive for believing that Sunday school message that there's a really a God up there. It's the way people intentionally want to exclude you from work social gatherings because they just feel that it's awkward to have someone with them who doesn't want to get plastered at the bars and the clubs. Not every workplace is like that. It would be harsh to say that of everything. But that could be how you, what you face. It's the way that you get grief from colleagues because you did the right thing because you felt Jesus would want you to do the right thing. But it kind of shows them up. It feels disloyal to them because they're cutting corners. For some of you, this suffering is the fact that every conversation you have with your family is cold and distant because they don't want to say the wrong thing because they just don't trust you anymore because they completely disagree with what you believe. It might be the suffering of outright abuse and anger and the things people say about you when they find out your beliefs about sexuality. 
For some people, it's even violent attacks, beatings and threats. That kind of thing has even caused some people here in this room to have to leave their own country. Living as resident aliens brings with it suffering. And even if it's not violent, even if it's not all the time for you, you will get living as a resident alien is going to grind you down and make you feel rejected or stupid or even scared. Not a position of thriving, of joy, but just feeling down about it. And Peter verse 6 says, in this you rejoice. Why? You're taking a path that's going to cause life to be harder. Why are you rejoicing? Well, hope, of course. And here's something really vital to understand here. Peter doesn't say that our hope is that one day after this rubbish bit is all over, we'll have joy then. So stick with it now because of your hope of the future. That's what an astronaut does. It's pretty rubbish when you've been sick because you've been at the gym too much. And your hope is only in the future. But Peter says, no, you'll rejoice now. Because our living hope is through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. And the pattern of the resurrection is that God works in the suffering. Not in spite of the suffering to get to the good bit later. God is working in the suffering, doing something good in the suffering. We often think, I think it's easy to think like this, that we glorify God and uh, we're going to find joy when things are going well. And suffering is an obstacle. It's just a shame suffering comes. But in an ideal world, we'd serve God, glorify him, and there'd be no suffering. But where is this living hope grounded? Verse 3. In the suffering and tomb of Jesus. There would be no hope if it weren't for the suffering of Jesus. God's plan wouldn't have been better if he'd have gotten rid of Jesus' suffering. Our rejoicing isn't despite the unfortunate thing of Jesus' death. Our rejoicing is because Jesus died and we have the hope of resurrection that came because of that. And because of Jesus, Jesus rose from the dead, our living hope is that our greatest enemy, death, is defeated. I heard someone put it like this. God's gone after the biggest bully in the playground. The thing that is going to get us is the worst, the most unavoidable thing, death. The most harsh and brutal reality we face, death. God's gone after that and he's defeated it. And so we can be real about suffering. We don't need to fear suffering or try and escape it or think it's a blot on God's plan. The suffering that you'll encounter, you can be real about it. You can look it in the eye because we have hope in Jesus' resurrection. Our hope is real about rejection. It's real about anger and violence. It's real about the damage to reputations and slander. Our hope is real about what people might say about you. It's not naive. We know what is going to come, but it's real about death, and it's real about Jesus rising, and he defeated death. And it's real about the fact that God brings life and good through that. Our suffering, verse 7, brings praise and glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. So our hope means we can rejoice even in the midst of suffering, not later. I wonder whether many people feel that suffering is a basic obstacle to joy. One or the other, right? 
You suffer so you can't have joy, but when your suffering's over, you will find joy. I desperately want joy, but at the moment I'm suffering. But once we get through this, then will be my joy. No, Christians are never called to weather the suffering, get through it and find joy at the end. Christians find joy available in the suffering, during the suffering. Because in the suffering, we've got hope, security, resurrection, a certain inheritance. As a resident alien, when you feel like a foreigner in your street or your workplace, don't put your head down and weather it out. Hope unlocks joy in the suffering. So you don't need to wait till things are easier to draw on joy. Joy isn't waiting for you at the end of this. Joy is here in your hope. And this opens up more to us in verses 8 and 9, as we see that hope pours out future joy now. Hope pours out the future joy now. One of the most famous um, sporting events in English history is the Football World Cup final in 1966. Long time ago, but definitely is uh, one of the most famous because people still talk about it now. Um, England won the World Cup in 1966. They beat West Germany 4-2. And along, as well as that being one of the most famous sporting events in English history, it's got one of the most famous, probably the most famous, line commentary. The commentator famously said, right near the end, so England were, were winning 3-2. There was about 30 or 40 seconds left, and England were winning, and there was less than a minute to go. So England were less than a minute from winning the World Cup. The glory and joy that comes with that, they were 3-2 up. And one of the people in the crowd, silly, blew a whistle. And some people thought, oh, we've won it, we've won it. And some people ran on the pitch. And the commentator said, there's some people on the pitch. They think it's all over. And in that moment, England scored their fourth goal to make them two goals ahead. There was only 30 seconds to go. There, was, there were two goals ahead. Of course it was gonna, they were going to win. So the commentator said, there's some people on the pitch. They think it's all over. It is now. Not many people realise this, but he was completely wrong. The game wasn't over. There was 30 seconds left to play. If you go and watch a replay of the match, the referee after that goal, England are 4-2 up, there's 30 seconds left. The referee says, okay, well, we've got 30 seconds, let's play on. And they put the ball back on the centre spot and West Germany kicked off. There was 30 seconds of hard work left to do. But how do you think the fans were feeling? The fans were partying in the stands. They were reveling in the joy and glory and honour of what wasn't yet complete. You know, that 30 seconds is where we are now. It's not all over. Our hope hasn't yet come to completion. It's not the end. Verse 5 says that we're waiting for a salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. That hasn't come yet. Verse 7 mentions our hope in the day when Jesus Christ is revealed, but that hasn't come yet. We are waiting. But verse 9, verse 9 is interesting. It says that our future hope is spilling over into the present. Just like England had a certain hope of becoming world champions in the final 30 seconds, there's no way that West Germany were going to score two goals. And just as the fans were jumping for joy, they were receiving the glory and joy of what wasn't complete yet. But you bet the glory and joy had already begun. 
Our hope is full of joy because even what hasn't yet come to us fully has surely begun. The salvation of our souls. It's in the future, but it's, it's now. Our glorious inheritance kept in heaven. It's in the future, but it's coming to us now. Because Peter opens up more about what that inheritance is. What is that inheritance? What are we waiting for? What is the final security? Is it lots of gold in heaven? Is it a lovely place to live? Is it a never-ending football match in heaven on the clouds? What is that inheritance that we're waiting for, that is our goal at the end? Verse 8 shows us. It's Jesus. Though you've not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, it said he's going to be revealed, but you don't see him now. But even though you don't see him now, you are, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. We haven't seen him yet. Our hope hasn't come to the end, but he has been revealed to us. But he will be revealed to us. And in the meantime, we love him. We love what we know of him. We know that he is the son of the father and we love that. We love that he is kind and gentle. We love that he is strong and wise. We love that he is merciful and forgiving. We love that he came and died on a cross. We love that he broke death because he rose again. We love that he is ours. We love him, but we haven't seen him. But our future hope of seeing him, well, that is still coming to us as we know him more. Even now you don't see him, but you can know him more. And you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. The joy that will be ours, but is coming down to us and flowing in now and now more and more. The future joy spills into our hearts as we know him. I want to say that's really important to you. If uh, That's really important if you've never understood this before. If you're somebody who has become a Christian, or you're interested in becoming a Christian, because you think that it will give you a better life. You think Christian values are good and fair. You see the way Christians look after each other and you think that's a nice life. Well, 1 Peter is all about how Christians actually don't have a nicer life. We actually live as people who don't fit in our culture and are going to be hated. 1 Peter is all about how Christians will suffer unfairly and choose that. Christianity won't bring you a better life if you're living distinctly. But you will have a better life because you know Jesus. Grief and suffering will follow you. But if you've become a Christian or are interested in becoming a Christian because you want Jesus, you want more of him, then you are on the path to joy. And I hope that's true of you if you are a Christian. Don't be disillusioned with how things go wrong because you're a Christian. But know that you are pursuing Jesus. It was him all along. He is your hope. He is your joy. He is your future. That's where your joy is. You haven't seen him, but as you see him more and more, 
you're filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. That's our hope. Hope in Jesus that gives us security that we need to do the hard thing. But in doing that, it unlocks joy, not after suffering, but even in suffering. And that's because we have Jesus. We have Jesus, who is our future hope to be revealed, that spills over into joy today as we know him more and more.